Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Any adoption of same-sex marriage is not just a moral disaster, not just a social disaster, it's a gospel, it's a theological disaster. Progressive education assumes that humans are inherently good. Thus, education should be primarily about helping humans self-express, that there's inherently good things that need to be brought out of the person. God gives us children so they'll break our stuff to keep us from idolatry. Children force you to move out of yourself The idea that the church could gather without physically gathering together has no place in the church. Christ did not redeem the church, did not redeem his people virtually, but in reality. Lutheran organists love listening to issues, etc., while shoveling snow. The famous Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, recently unearthed or partially unearthed, a big find in biblical archaeology is now open to the public. Why would I see? And that's just one of a number of big archaeological discoveries that came to light in 2022. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, January the 9th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Dr. Craig Evans will join us to talk about the opening of the Pool of Siloam to the public and biblical archaeology's top discoveries of 2022. Then Pastor Sean Denzer joins us, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to look forward to the second Sunday after Epiphany, according to the three-year lectionary. Dr. Craig Evans is the John Bazzano Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Christian University and author of numerous books, including Jesus and His World, The Archaeological Evidence. Dr. Evans, welcome back. Thank you very much, Todd. Good to be with you. We recently discussed the Pool of Siloam discovery and the surrounding discoveries there in Jerusalem. It's now open to the public. If I were to go to Jerusalem to this archaeological site, what would I see? You would only see a small portion of the pool. I mean, it's a good portion. You'd get a good sense of what it would have looked like. You would see a stretch of the edge of the pool, some steps that would have gone down to the bottom of the pool. wouldn't have been very deep. I'm trying to think right now. I've been in it many times. It might be up to your chest, something like that. And uh, what's exciting is that they have managed to get permission, ownership. I don't know how the politics and the finances worked out, but they're now in a position to unearth the rest of the pool. So probably have not even one quarter of it unearthed right now, but they're going to begin unearthing. I've been reading up on it, the report from the IAA, that is the Israel Antiquities Authority. They don't give a specific date. They haven't even made up their mind how much they'll let people see as they excavate. But eventually the entire pool will be uncovered, and it'll be large. The estimation is it's something like an acre in a total expanse. And it was discovered in 2004, quite by accident. If you've been to Jerusalem prior to that, you'd be pointed to a place not that far away that used to be called the Pool of Siloam. It dates to the Crusader era. But uh, archaeologists and experts in topography always wondered if that was the correct one. And so what happened in 2004, a friend of mine, Eli Shukron, an archaeologist, 
was working nearby and near the Temple Mount and a little bit south of it. And what happened was someone with a backhoe was digging because there was a drainage pipe that was leaking. And Ellie heard the backhoe, the bucket, strike something hard and scrape against it. And so he ran up to the site, asked the excavator to stop, and he jumped down into the hole with a trowel, and he realized that it was dressed stone, flat dressed stone. It was uh, the bottom of something. And so he said, you're going to have to stop digging. And so the IA was alerted, and they excavated what you now can see. And uh, some of these steps, uh, the terrace side of the pool, and it was determined this is the real pool of Siloam. This is the pool that's mentioned in the Gospel of John. This is the very pool where Jesus told the man to wash out his eyes and he regained his sight. Excavations since then have gone on, connecting the pool uphill toward the Temple Mount. We actually have recovered part of the steps and the walkway that people would have used. So we think that they immersed themselves back in Jesus' time, and then walk their way into the Temple Mount itself. So this is very exciting, and uh, I've been to this site many times. As recently as just last spring with Kevin Sorbo, we were filming uh, a documentary about the Temple. Every time I'm there, I, I look at this bulk, this stack of you know ground, and there's an orchard on it, that covers the rest of the pool. And I've always thought, wow, if we could just dig all that away, we could see the rest of the pool. Because we actually don't know its shape. If you look at artist depictions, uh, there's, some of them are rectangular. Some of them have a different kind of a shape, not necessarily parallel sides. Well, we'll find out. And so now it looks like it's going to be dug away. We're actually going to see the whole thing. So, yeah, that's good news. That will be very exciting. What is the significance of a Canaanite inscription on a small ivory comb that was uh, reported on in 2022? Well, you know, anything that takes us back in time and gives us an actual, some words that make sense. And this comb says, may this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard is kind of funny. So it's it's almost like instructions on on a on a modern thing that you buy, you know, on medicine or a container containing toothpaste or something and explains how you use it. I'm looking at the picture of it right now and when it was found at first that people just thought it was scratches, then some sharp eyed person looked at it very carefully and realized, hey, this is paleo Aramaic or Paleo Canaanite, and we were able to decipher it. And so it became known in 2022 that this comb, I mean, it was found in, I think, in four or five years before that, but the inscription was discovered this past year. And so anytime you have a, uh, a sentence, uh, words, lettering, or something that goes back that far, I mean, they're talking about. Um, Oh, something like 1700 B.C. could be the date of this. I mean, this is in an era before the conquest. This is before the, the Hebrew people arrived. And so this is huge. And you might remember, I know, Todd, we've talked about it on your program before, the mythicists or minimalists who say, oh, nobody could write anything. Who could write the stories of David and King Saul and so on? 
because that goes back to 1000 BC. Well, now we've got writing, simple mundane instructions or recommendations written on a comb, and it goes back hundreds of years earlier than that. And so I think it's more evidence that there was a literacy, a scribal culture in the Old Testament, the earliest Old Testament times that scholars did not know about before. And so I think it embarrasses the minimalists who say that nobody could read or write, nobody could write down these stories till hundreds of years later. That simply is not true. Another of the top reported biblical archaeology stories has to do with the curses of Mount Ebal, which would reference the era of Joshua and the judges. And this little artifact was missed the first time around. What is it? Well, you know, I have the inside track on this because I know the archaeologist involved. He's a colleague of mine. His house is 20 minutes from where I live, and that's Scott Stripling. And what Scott began doing, he was an early believer in wet sifting, and the late Herschel Shanks, who uh, launched and, and edited the Biblical Archaeology Review for decades, was a champion of wet sifting. What happens in dry sifting, which just about every archaeologist will do, the debris that, you know, the, the what we would might call just dirt and debris, is sifted. And what will happen is coins will be discovered, small pieces of pottery, a cartouche might be found or something like that from Egypt. You never know, a piece of jewelry, things like that are discovered. But small pieces that have been embedded in earth for hundreds of years are very disguised. And what wet sifting does is you put it, it's almost like panning for gold. There it is in this basin and and you're spraying it with water. I've Scott sets up wet sifting stations like at Shiloh, where he's doing that now, and also they're wet sifting at Mount Abel because there were piles of debris that had been dug up from the excavations that go back decades, but none of it had been wet sifted. So he started doing this wet sifting, and what the wet sifting does is it washes off the dirt, whatever is clinging to the artifact. And so something that's completely invisible to the naked eye, it just looks like a little dirt clod or a little stone or something like that, the the pressurized water spraying on it cleans it up, and then you realize you're looking at a coin, you're looking at a piece of pottery that might have an inscription on it. These things are hugely important. They can tell us about dates and so on. Well, what happened here at Mount Ebal they were going through, and they were finding a lot of things. Uh, it's amazing how many coins. They estimate that more than one half of all coins are thrown out accidentally if you don't do wet sifting. So there are some staggering statistics like that. So here they are wet sifting, and somebody finds something and says, hey, this looks like a little square piece of lead. And it, it didn't look, it's not natural. This must be man-made. And so Scott was really excited. Yes, it is lead. You can't open it up. It would just shatter. It's so brittle. But anytime you find a piece of lead and you quickly recognize that it was a small square the size of a postage stamp that had been folded, that's almost certainly a cursed tablet. And, of course, Mount Ebal is famous 
in both uh, Deuteronomy and in Joshua, because of the curses that are to be pronounced, there was this ritual that took place on that very mountain. And so here's something that's probably a cursed tablet found on this place, wet sifting material that dates back to 12, 13, 1400 B.C., which is suggestive of this could be the very time when Joshua and the conquest took place. This could be the very ceremony of cursing talked about in the Bible. And so with x-rays and other technology that's way beyond my expertise, they were actually able to make out the Paleo-Hebrew writing on the outside and inside, folded in this. And the text was discovered to read, Cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh, you will be cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. I mean, that's a lot of text on such a small uh, lead tablet. And this then coheres with what's what's found in Joshua 8.30 and found in other texts in Deuteronomy and Joshua. So this is an astounding discovery. I'm surprised, frankly, that it it isn't number one. In my opinion, it should trade places with the ivory comb. I mean, the ivory comb is huge, and I guess it wins first prize because it's even older. It goes all the way back before the conquest and, and testifies to writing. But these two combined shows everybody that writing in the second millennium B.C. was, in fact, common and the skepticism that's been voiced in the past about there was nobody who could write down the stories of King David or something like that, that is just nonsense. There were people who could write the stories of the conquest, could write the stories of the judges, and write the stories of the early monarchy in Israel's history. And that's one of the reasons these discoveries are so important. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest. We're talking about the Biblical Archaeology Top Discoveries of 2022. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. 
You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Bogan. We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, author of Jesus and His World, the Archaeological Evidence, about the top 10 or so biblical archaeology discoveries in 2022. Dr. Evans, what is the significance of some small fragments of ivory found in the old city of Jerusalem? Well, you know, these fragments of ivory, the best we can tell, and I've only seen pictures of them, I haven't read any detailed report, but like one of the kings in 1 Kings 10.18 has a bed that is uh, has ivory in it, like bedposts and so on, made of ivory. What ivory shows, as best as we know for this period of time, we're talking about the 7th and 8th centuries B.C., the kingdom of Israel had become wealthy. This was a sign, and so when, when the book of Kings talks about Solomon and ivory and some of his successor kings having ivory, I mean, this stuff was worth more than gold at this period of time. And so the kingdom of Israel had become affluent. The monarchs, the kings, the elite were wealthy people, and it matches the description that we have in Scripture. Scripture says that there was great wealth acquired by Solomon and his successors. And so this again shows that the biblical account is not a fairy tale or describing a kingdom that never really existed, but it's describing a real kingdom, and the descriptions may have seemed quite amazing to us today, but in reality, they reflect what was going on, and the physical evidence has been unearthed. It's no wonder that expansive empires, aggressive empires, like the Assyrian Empire that attacked and destroyed the northern kingdom and attacked and reduced the southern kingdom, as well as the later Babylonian kingdom that conquered Jerusalem, it's no wonder that these aggressive empires did what they did. They wanted to loot their neighbors. And that's exactly what was going on. There was wealth in Jerusalem, in Judea, and that's what they wanted. And the only way is like a protection racket. Give them the gold, give them the ivory, give them the valuables so they'll leave us alone. So this this just helps flesh out what the biblical story, what it was talking about back then, before the Babylonians destroyed the temple and captured Jerusalem and brought the Davidic kingdom to an end. So this is just more valuable archaeological data that shows, again, the Bible's talking about real people, real places, real events, and is talking about them very accurately. What is linear Elamite, and why is it now possible to decipher this language? Well, you know, this is almost 
on the level of the Rosetta Stone, where we could read a little bit of Egyptian hieroglyphics, and then the Rosetta Stone was discovered in the late 18th century, and it led to our ability to decipher and read Egyptian hieroglyphics. Well, Elamite is not from Egypt, of course. It's in the today's Iraq. It's part of the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent. And they, they were a people about which we don't know much. We know they were there, and we have some texts, but there's been a type of Elamite, and I, I don't have any expertise in this area, but it goes all the way back to 2000 B.C. It's related to cuneiform, but because of this discovery, it's easier to read. And so we will likely understand cuneiform texts, which are written with these funny little figures uh, here at, at my university. We actually have a few tablets in our own museum. And so this discovery should help us be able to read these better. I'm hoping it helps us understand and we can read better the Ebla tablets also, which are difficult to read for this reason. So it's another important step forward. Time will tell if my comparison with the Rosetta Stone is valid. Maybe it's an exaggeration, but it'll help us read texts. And of course, again, here's evidence of literacy. It's not exactly an alphabet, but it's it's evidence of literacy that that reaches back all the way to 2000, 2100, 2200 BC. Another of the significant archaeological discoveries is not a discovery in and of itself, but some of the news surrounding a dating method in archaeology. What is that? Well, yes, and uh, I'm not a scientist, and I don't have the actual expertise to know how to do this, but I've read it with great interest. Todd, knowing how to date, and you know, usually we rely on stratigraphy, and that's mostly contextual uh, and circumstantial, sometimes within a layer, and that's what stratigraphy is all about. It's, it's measuring the layers, and so most sites are like a layered cake. The deeper you go, the older it is. But again, it's, it, it tends to be just contextual. So the lower level's older than the level above it, and the level above that is newer. So there's a relativity there, but what this is doing helps us get more specific, more absolute. So instead of simply saying this layer here is older than the one that's on top of it, to start saying, no, it actually dates to such and such century. And so any kind of technology that helps us be more precise, like carbon-14, which gives us a plus or minus date based on carbon reduction, half-life of carbon, well, this magnetic dating is something like that. It's just, of course, it's magnetic, and it's been activated or influenced by fiery destructions. And, of course, almost all sites that have different layers have destruction layers. And, of course, they're obvious. You find charcoal. You find stuff. You see stone, like limestone, that it was superheated and is partly melted. Uh, and so you might find badly burned skeletal remains. So destruction layers aren't hard to identify. This will now help us 
to date them. And so this is a big step forward for archaeology because dating is very important in order to assess what's been found and get a sense of the sequence and the history that has taken place. We're discussing Biblical Archaeology's Top Discoveries of 2022 with Dr. Craig Evans. I'm Todd Wilkin. Your link to Issues Etc. The author of our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the Concordia Commentary on John, beginning in Chapter 7, says, I came to understand the evangelist John uses the language of exaltation and glorification to speak of the cross of Jesus. In the cross, the Son is manifested in the fullness of his obedience, that is, in the fullness of his true sonship. He is as his Father wills. That's how he begins the Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 through 1250. You can find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We'll talk about the town of Bethsaida next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness, or visit our website, witness.lsms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. From the time of Moses, 3,500 years ago, the church has been adorning her sacred spaces at the instruction of the Lord. Ad Crucem seeks to continue this tradition to the best of our ability as we create beautiful things to point us to Christ crucified for sinners. See our posters, greeting cards, artwork and banners, each proclaiming the good work that our Lord has done for us. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. 
Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about Biblical Archaeology's Top Discoveries of 2022 with Dr. Craig Evans. He is John Bizzagno, Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Christian University and author of numerous books, including Jesus and His World, The Archaeological Evidence. Bethsaida is always a significant site there on the Sea of Galilee. What was newly discovered in 2022? Well, you know, this is fascinating. I know the the rival archaeologists personally. Todd, it's part of a big story. About 30 years ago, Rami Arav and a team, and including the, the late Richard Freund, began excavating about a oh almost a mile north of the shore at the and this is the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is important because this is the hometown of Peter and his brother Andrew, and at least one other disciple of Jesus named Philip. So three disciples are from Bethsaida. And so the more we know about Bethsaida, the more we know about the upbringing and preparation, you might say, for being active in Jesus' ministry. And so this is really important for us. Plus, at least two miracles took place in the vicinity of Bethsaida, including the feeding of the 4,000. So this is really important, and the dispute is, have we actually found Bethsaida? Why is Bethsaida so far up the hill, north of the shoreline? And Rami said, well, there was a flood in the 4th century, a mudslide that shoved the shoreline south. So that was part of his argument. Well, Stephen Notley has said, no, the Byzantine-era village by the water's edge, El Araj, that's the place. And it went back and forth saying, yeah, but there's no sign at El Araj that that anyone ever venerated it. Byzantines, for example, in the 4th century or something like that. And that would be major proof that in antiquity it was recognized as the place where Peter came from. The very place of Bethsaida mentioned in the New Testament Gospels. Well, Stephen Notley has continued with his work. They found mosaics, they found some structure, but is it a church? Well, now it's been confirmed it is. And in fact, Peter now has actually been found mentioned. Now, this this is after Peter's time, of course, but this has the same evidence value, I think, as at Capernaum, where you have an early Byzantine chapel built on top of what was believed to be Peter's house. And the name Peter's actually there. 
And I'm a believer in continuity of village memory. People didn't move around as much back then as we do now. And so information, knowledge, and tradition is passed on generation by generation. And they all, everybody grows up saying, that's the very house where Jesus was, the very house where Peter, uh, his mother-in-law, lived there, and Jesus and Peter were there. Well, you have that continuity of Capernaum. It's beginning to look like the same thing is happening at Bethsaida. This is the very place, the very village, which is near the water's edge. Well, it would have been the water's edge 2,000 years ago. So that's where you expect fishing boats to be tied up. And so Notley, I think, has the upper hand now in this debate between the two archaeologists. Have we found Bethsaida by the shoreline, or is it somewhat up the hill? And this discovery really works in Notley's favor, so it's very important. The excavations will continue, no doubt, in years from now, we'll be talking about more discoveries there, too. So this is a big one. The king of Judah, Hezekiah, obviously is an enormous presence in biblical archaeology. Why is that, and what was discovered in 2022? Well, you know, we're right back to the Pool of Siloam. We began talking about that, and it looks like we have found an inscription that actually refers to it. It says, the inscription in Hebrew says, Hezekiah made the pool in Jerusalem. And, uh, of course, this matches what Second Kings chapter 20, verse 20 says, as for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements, and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city. And, of course, this is Hezekiah's famous tunnel, and there was an inscription found inside this tunnel, and you can, I've been in the tunnel many times, and I've gone to the very place where the inscription used to be. The inscription was uh, taken off the wall, chiseled out, and is now in Istanbul. What you can see now in the tunnel is a replica of it. Replicas are commonplace. We have one at the museum at my university. And it actually explains how workers from either end chiseled their way through solid stone and met in the center. And that was quite an achievement. And that's so the Gihon spring water then is guided into the Pool of Siloam. So Hezekiah built the tunnel, built the Pool of Siloam, which would have been upgraded and refurbished again and again on into the time of Herod the Great. So these are amazing discoveries. So we're going to be able to excavate the entire pool it looks like, in the months and years ahead. And we also have the inscription that was found, you know, 100 years ago, but now we actually have yet another inscription that refers to Hezekiah by name that he had built this pool in Jerusalem. And so the pieces, we keep finding more pieces that connect. The dots keep connecting, and they fill out more and more of the biblical story with actual archaeological confirmation and clarification. To me, I'm just blown away. The sky is the limit. Who knows from year to year what's going to be found next. It begins to go beyond one's own imagination of what can be found. I mean, I never would have believed that these kinds of discoveries, I guess I need to be a little more believing. It's just, to me, astonishing. There was a exceedingly ancient tomb, untouched, since it was sealed up, discovered near Tel Aviv. Tell us about that. 
Well, this one is astonishing, too, because it dates back to 1300 B.C. We have found many tombs. In fact, the way it was found, uh, a digging machine actually dropped through the ground. It turned out it was on the roof of the tomb, but you didn't know that. And it reminded me of how the Caiaphas family tomb was found in Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv, but in Jerusalem in 1990. It was the same thing. A worker was actually shoveling or using a pickaxe or something, and the ground gave way, and he dropped into a tomb below him. And when we find a tomb like this, in this particular case, the one at Tel Aviv, that's Canaanite, so it predates the uh, Jewish occupation of the land, the conquest. So it's another very early discovery. This tomb had never been molested. This tomb had never been looted. And archaeologists dream about making these kinds of discoveries. So the artifacts are found in situ, unmolested, undisturbed, which means we can examine not only the artifacts themselves, bone boxes, if any, grave goods, as we call them. There can be jewelry, there can be jugs, plates, vessels of one sort or another, but also skeletal remains, undisturbed. And we can learn so much from the culture. Sometimes we learn things about afterlife beliefs. We can do the anthropological work, measure the bones, how healthy were they, how old were they when they passed away, things like that. So this is a great discovery. So I'm not at all surprised that it's on the, on the top 10 list for 2022. Why do those who study the papyrus fragments believe that a fragment discovered hanging on a wall in Montana is ancient and genuine? Well, that's not that hard to determine. You know, the it's papyrus. And we know papyri can date back 3,000 years. We have found papyrus, uh, or papyri in the plural, in Egypt that date back to 1,000 B.C. This dates to around 700 B.C. And, Todd, this we can date because of carbon-14. We actually can get a give-or-take 50-, 60-year kind of date. And then the handwriting itself will often, it's ancient Hebrew, and just a few short lines of Hebrew, I guess this is our theme for our conversation this time around is ancient writing found written in stone or written on pottery or written on papyrus or whatever. We keep coming up with ancient text, and this is just great. And so to have a papyrus, I mean, it's it's unbelievable that somebody would end up, you know, finding it or being given it and then taking it home. Unfortunately, a lot of artifacts have left the Middle East, Egypt, Israel, or elsewhere, not being properly studied or cataloged or evaluated, and then they wind up in somebody's possession. And uh, we have some things like that ourselves uh, in our museum. And that was back in the day, in the 1800s, early 20th century, where it wasn't exactly looting, but things were happening and that's why there are stiffer controls in place now in these countries so that things like this don't happen. But it is genuine. We think so anyway. Thus far, this, the uh, tests show that it's authentic papyrus. It is that old, which is very old for papyrus. And the handwriting looks right. So and it's the name Ishmael, that one of the names written on it. 
which is a link to the biblical story. Of course, I'm not saying that this is the same Ishmael that's mentioned in the book of Genesis, who's the first child of the patriarch Abraham, but it is an important discovery, and maybe it'll lead to more of them uh, like it. It's too early to tell. We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans about the top discoveries of biblical archaeology in 2022. What do liberal Bible scholars do with all of the mounting archaeological evidence confirming the claims of the Bible? If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Life Week 2023 with Lutherans for Life is coming soon, and you're personally invited to join in celebrating that you are blessed for life. From Sunday, January 15th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023, go to lutheransforlife.org for more information and for Zoom links. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Expert guests. Expansive topics. Extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu 
Congratulations to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's newest Navy chaplain, Carl Gibbs. LCMS chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Find out more about their work at lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve LCMS ministry to the armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest. We're talking about biblical archaeology's top discoveries of 2022. Dr. Evans, what do liberal Bible scholars do with all these mounting archaeological evidence confirming the biblical accounts? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, if I can generalize, they mostly keep quiet and hope that uh, we forget that they ever expressed their skepticism. I've seen that in my own field. I'm really a New Testament specialist. But the Dead Sea Scrolls embarrassed a lot of skeptics. Uh, typically, they would say, well, you know, this uh, this statement of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew or Luke or something like that, it really couldn't have said that because nobody would nobody was thinking that way or nobody, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this must be from a later time. And then, you know, you find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're mostly first century B.C., and you have similar ideas there. And so the idea that Jesus could not have said that, that therefore it's a Christian who put it in his mouth later after exposure, say, to the Greco-Roman world, it gets embarrassed by these discoveries. Well, I think in the Old Testament world it's the same thing, and a lot of it has to do with what we've been talking about in today's program, and that's literacy. And so a lot of the skepticism or minimalism, not only on the part of certain archaeologists who have been minimalists, but also biblical interpreters who have been minimalists, is just the assumption that nobody could read or write in, say, 1000 B.C., or that writing could not possibly be sophisticated enough to tell the stories of David and King Saul and Solomon and so on, the stories that you find, say, in the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, that nobody could really write that way till after the Babylonian exile. So not until you get into, say, uh, about 500 B.C. did you have the literacy that was sufficient to write these stories. Well, when you start finding literacy that goes back prior to 1000 BC, all the way back to 2000 BC, you really have to stop Say, you know, the whole basis of this skepticism has collapsed. And then, Todd, the other thing that goes with it isn't just literacy, but when you start finding actual objects that were described in the biblical narratives, like these ivories, for example, but other things, too, inscriptions referring to construction or certain buildings or whatever. And you find this correlation between the biblical narrative that says so-and-so did this or so-and-so built that or so-and-so went someplace. And then you have archaeological discoveries that show that, yeah, that's true, that did exist then. Then, of course, that combines with the observation about literacy that just begins to knock holes in the theories of minimalism. So I think the minimalists, the lesson for them is, look, respect the text. I agree that from a scholarly point of view, just because a text says something, you're not obligated to believe it, but you, I think, are obligated to have some kind of evidence for being skeptical. And the evidence just keeps piling up that suggests the skepticism is misplaced. 
and I would say this, it doesn't have to be a biblical text. Any text from antiquity that says so-and-so lived here or did this, there should be respect for that text unless you have very good reason for doubting it. And I think a lot of skepticism has been unwarranted. It's getting embarrassed. And I think, and, and you know, some, some of these skeptical scholars are big enough to say, hey, I was wrong. Looks like this, this story is true, you know, that the biblical story should be accepted. Some do that. Some just to stay quiet. And like I said, hope we all forget that, that uh, skepticism had been expressed at one time. Of course, Christians are not inclined to be skeptical this way in terms of the biblical text, and we're not surprised, although we're not surprised when the spade proves to be the friend of the Bible in almost every single case. Do you think it reaches a critical mass at some point when enough has been uncovered to say, we are dealing with, even if you're going to be skeptical about some of the claims, we are dealing with a largely credible text in the Bible. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, We can speculate about what defines or what constitutes a critical mass, but I've been a full-time academic for 42 years, and I have seen some what I would describe as general shifts where the skepticism that I encountered when I was a a PhD student, that skepticism has simply disappeared very gradually. There were people, for example, Todd, 40 years ago, who said there were no synagogues in the time of Jesus, that that's anachronistic, that when the Gospels were written, and they would date them very late, they're written after the year 70, after the temple was destroyed, and synagogues were being built, and so they just mistakenly thought that synagogues existed in Jesus' day. Well, nobody argues that now. I mean, that would be laughed at. And so, yeah, I think what happens, there is an accumulation of evidence that just keeps piling up that skeptical theories that maybe were always a minority view, they get so, so discredited, they, they just get dropped. It wasn't that long ago, you know, 30 years ago. Jesus really wasn't crucified, or he really wasn't taken down off the cross. He really wasn't buried. We've found just too much skeletal evidence, too many crucifixion nails. Just You don't hear people making that claim anymore. It would sound silly. So I think evidence does pile up, but will we ever reach a point where there's just so much evidence that skepticism completely disappears? I doubt that. Knowing human nature, (laughs) I doubt that. I think somebody will always want to express skepticism about something. But uh, on the whole, I'd say the evidence keeps mounting that uh, it's getting harder and harder to argue minimalism, mythicism, radical skepticism. And keep in mind, of the biblical sites, only 5 or 6% of these sites have been excavated at all at any part. And most of them, most of these sites have only been partially excavated. And so if this much evidence has been accumulated with only a little bit of the potential explored, what's it going to be like 100 years from now if, if we're now talking about 20% of the sites have been excavated? So I, I think the evidence 
as you suggested earlier, keeps pushing in the direction that shows that these biblical narratives are truthful, they are describing real people, real events, things that really happened. So I think that trend will continue. Dr. Craig Evans is the John Bazzano Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Christian University and author of numerous books, including Jesus and His World, The Archaeological Evidence. Purchase this book on our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Evans, thanks. You're very welcome. We will be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, to the second Sunday after the Epiphany with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, next. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation for the people of God. The Substitute Organist Service, aptly abbreviated SOS, really has come to our rescue. Pastor Jim Holowatch of Christ Lutheran Church in Jackson, Mississippi. With the ever-growing shortage of skilled musicians in our community, we were approaching a real crisis. But thanks to the Substitute Organist Service, help is always just minutes away. With its easy, intuitive interface, friendly customer service, and outstanding musicianship, you really couldn't ask for more. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com. Terry Mattingly is the eternal boomer. In other words, he, due to the circumstances of his birth, is lame. Here's some feedback from the Issues Etc. comment line. Terry can be counted on to deliver his boring, blasé takes in his irritatingly pseudo-profound fashion. Anyway, lame. May God have mercy on Terry and Issues Etc. You're all a bunch of lame boomers.
The Issues Etc. comment line, available 24-7, I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day, you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests, substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc.